Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Online. If you're new, welcome. If not, welcome back. Well, today I'm really excited to dive back into our series called The Story. I think uh, most of you who are part of our community have a copy. If you don't have a copy, you can come on Sunday, grab one uh, in the back of our worship center. It's our free gift to you because we think it's extremely important that you engage and commit to interacting with this series as much as possible. So we're going to be reading together most of the major stories of the Bible and then diving into them and unpacking them on Sunday mornings and in our Kimfolk groups throughout the week. Uh, the book, the story, is really important because we expect you to read the chapter of the story that we're on before showing up to worship on Sunday so that you can get the most out of the teaching and out of the discussions that happen at our table groups after service. So the book also uh, has a great resource by including questions for reflection and discussion for for our groups and for you, and it's at the back of the book, so it's easy to do that as well. So this is a good point to say that if you're not participating and sharing life with the others in the church through a kinfolk group, then you are just simply missing out in a major way. What it, what You're missing out on what it means to follow Jesus in a way that's real, because discipleship happens in circles, not in rows on a Sunday morning only. It happens at the real-life relationship level in our homes and out throughout the neighborhood, throughout the week. And in this series, it's especially important that you make the intentional effort of participating in the story in our table groups, but also in our kinfolk groups. And if you're not in one yet, uh, be courageous and adventurous and try something new. Jump in. So I should also say that our, our uh, youth group, our student ministries group on Wednesday nights uh, is also involved in the story as well. So uh, if you want your kids to be involved in that, make sure they're here on Wednesday nights. So last week we started out with uh, the story that tells us about God's creation of the universe. The first uh, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And we talked about the upper story and the lower story. And I showed you like the five main movements of the upper story that we see God telling uh, in the upper story. God creates, he creates the lower story. He has a vision and a trajectory for where this narrative is going. And to get there, uh, there are all these smaller stories woven into this kind of grand symphony. It's like one truly great epic narrative. The main emphasis of that teaching was that God created you and me, male and female, as the ones who bear his image, to be like him, to reflect who he is, and to take care of all this creation on his behalf. And then we talked about how that was all messed up and how we've inherited that same tendency, a, a nature to sin, which we defined as any thought or action that is destructive and harms myself or others, whether emotionally or verbally or physically or spiritually. Uh, but we also acknowledged something that came before that, something incredibly and extremely profound, probably the most profound reality of God creating us. He said everything he created was good. Remember, he spoke and everything was created and he called it good. And then he breathed into dirt and created humanity and he called us very good. Tov me'ov. My wife reminded me uh, of this key difference last week that God spoke everything else into existence and he breathed his very breath into us when creating us. Tov me'ov. Very good. Well, then we looked at the story of Noah and how God in his sadness had to start over from scratch. Uh, but we're given a promise that one day a Savior would come to the world in the form of Jesus. So in this creation account, we see that God creates the world for us to be in it, 
to take care of it, but that even when we mess up, he doesn't run away and he doesn't give up on us. He does the opposite in his pursuit of us. He chases us and he runs after us with a compassionate love. And so that's how the story begins, with a good God who speaks and breathes the universe and the world and us into existence. And he calls us very good. And God says, I invite you into a place of rest to trust me. But then Adam and Eve don't, and Cain doesn't, and basically all humanity doesn't. And even after a restart with Noah, we come very quickly to an entirely new civilization and people in chapter 11, and it just looks like everything is just getting worse and worse and worse. And then we come to chapter 2 in our storybooks, and we meet a man by the name of Abram, and he knows how to trust the story. He seems to understand that if he's loved, if I'm valued, if I'm loved, that I don't have to be in this for just me. I don't need it. I don't need more for me. I don't need to worry about my name and my descendants and my, my, me, my, me, my, my. If I'm loved, if I have everything I need, if I can find a place of rest and shalom, then I'm willing to lay my life down on the behalf of other people. The moment that Abram does that, God shows up and says, I'm looking for partners to put the world back together. Are you interested? Because that's what I'm up to. God has always been trying to put the world back together, and he's looking for partners. And anybody who's willing to trust the story is a pretty darn good candidate. So that's what God has. That's basically what he has on his LinkedIn business page for the current open positions he has listed. Looking for partners to help put the world back together. And that's why in our house, the, the Wheeler house, when we're getting ready in the morning, you can hear one of the Wheelers say, I'll have to slay some dragons, or more positively, in the form of a question, you guys ready to make the world a better place? That's what it's about. So let's see what God actually says to Abram. This is in Genesis 12, or on page 13 of your storybook, and it says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Okay, now... We hear this word blessing, and because of the culture that we live in, we almost always focus on the blessing. This is not about the blessing. Biblically, God never blesses you so that you can just hang out in community be community, and you know, be the blessed ones. God does not bless you so that you can just be blessed. That's not how blessing works. That's like prosperity gospel. Sorry, not it. God blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. So God shows up to Abraham and says, to Abram and says, Abram, I see that you trust the story. I'm looking for partners because if I can partner with you, you can be my conduit for my blessing to the rest of the world. And here's what the rest of that scripture says in Genesis 12:3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The whole point of this blessing is all nations. I mean, how many of you have heard that the Old Testament is all about God's chosen people? That's garbage, actually. This has always been about all creation, all people, always. From the first day, God has always been about the same redemption and restoration project for all people. He says, I want to bless all peoples through you, but it's not about you. I'm looking for partners, and if you join me, then I can reach everyone else. Now, don't ask me why God does that, because I'm sure he doesn't need our help. I mean, he's God. But here are some, here's some observations about Abram and his family that we can make from reading this week's chapter. Abram and his family, through this struggle, 
I want you to please hear me. Abram is not perfect. He's going to struggle at times to figure out what it means to trust the story, but he's going to try. His family isn't perfect, and there's some there's some icky stuff. There's some dysfunction. It's messy. They don't always, they don't always nail it on the first try, but 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 these are people who are willing through their struggle at the core of their being. They're going to try to lean into the story that God is trying to tell in the world. We are capable in tough times of leaning into God's story and the things that He says. So Abram and his family are the kind of people that when God says, Abram, I want you to do this, they think, well, uh, that's kind of hard to figure out. I don't understand all of it, but all right, I'll go there with you and do that. And secondly, I would say this, it's because of this willingness that God continues to intimately invite them to partner with his redemptive work. It's always been God's plan. I'm trying to put the world back together and I'm looking for anybody who will trust that I am for them and that I love them, and that I value them, that I'm not against you. I'm not angry. I don't need to be appeased. I'm looking for anybody who's willing. And if I can find them, I'm going to partner with them. That's what God's been up to. So I want to hone in on a few stories in Abram's life and then pull it apart a little bit. So here we go. If you're not ready, you're in trouble. Uh, here's, Here's where we're going to start. At one point, God says to Abram, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And your descendants. This is in Genesis 15. God says in verse 5, he, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And I love that last part where Abram asked, how can I know? Why do I love that? Because it's just like us, isn't it? I I can relate to that question. I want to know. How can I know? How can I trust you? Well, let's look at it this way. Uh, Our kids are in Kid City this morning and our children's ministry learning the story as well. And they're working on like the coolest craft that goes along with this as an object lesson. But the problem with this promise that God gives Abram is that Sarai, his wife, is barren. And God looks at that and says, that's not a problem. But we don't have, he doesn't have God's perspective. And we don't have God's perspective. Any of you been there before? Like, you don't see what God sees? Or could ever even imagine everything that God could do? They don't have that perspective. They just have... God's perspective is like this, and they have this little, little sliver. And so they're trying to figure out what God might be up to. I don't know how many of you have ever been in that place as well, but they struggle. And we're going to get more, we're going to get into that struggle a little bit more in a minute. But it's at this point in Genesis 15, uh, verses 9 through 21, that God does something that is truly amazing. And we've talked about this at length in our Covenant and Kingdom series and in our Genesis, Genesis series in the past. My summary would be this. This section of the story is where God creates a mutually binding contract called a covenant with Abram. And since God is the greater, more powerful party in the contract, Abram is the lesser party. And there are certain terms where the two parties are saying, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what what I'll do to hold up our end of the deal. And in essence, we become like extended family and we have each other's back. So the kicker here is that one of the parties, if one of the parties doesn't own up to their end of the contract, then their life is forfeit. 
The other party gets to exact vengeance, so it becomes like a curse. Essentially, both parties have to walk through this mess of bloody sacrificed animals and say, may what happen to these animals happen to me if I don't honor this covenant. And then Abraham looks at the terms and he's like, are you serious? There's no way. This is impossible. And then God does the inconceivable. Abram remains on the sideline and God walks through the sacrificed animals by himself. In essence, God is saying, I know you can't do it. I'll do it for you. If, if I fail you in keeping my end of the contract, may it be unto me like this. But if you fail the con, if you fail the contract, Abram, may it also be unto me and not to you like this. May my body be broken. May my blood be poured out. And there's some massive foreshadowing going on here, right? God is so serious about his promise that Abram and Sarai's descendants will be like the stars and that these people will be God's people to help him show his love to the world, that he takes the burden of all the cost on himself, which is just absolutely unthinkable. So back to Sarai, who despite this phenomenal covenant, she ends up taking matters into her own hand. She says, you know, I, I know what we need to do here. I'm so old, this isn't going to happen. We need a surrogate mother. So you need to have a son through my Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. So they do that. And God's like, well, that's not how I wanted this to go. Later on, she has a baby boy when she's 90 years old. And they name him Isaac, which means to laugh. Because that's what you do when you have a baby and you're 90. So now they have two sons. But that's a problem. It's messy. And we can't resolve this. And that's okay, because what I'm trying to do here is get you to see that their story is our story. Because I know in the world we live in, uh, the world we live in has more than a few broken families in it. And Abram and Sarah's story is your story too. Their story is tough. It's struggle. It's not clean. It's not perfect. This is where they're at. And then Sarah, Sarah finally has Isaac. And because of the messiness in these relationships, Abram ends up sending Hagar away. And he's greatly distressed. He doesn't want to do this. This is in Genesis 21. God tells him he will take care of Hagar and Ishmael. And then we're told a verse or two later that Hagar and Ishmael are out of supplies and they're hungry and they're out in the desert and they're thirsty and they're hopeless. So Hagar puts Ishmael under a bush and walks away because she says, I can't bear to watch my son die. So I'm just going to put him under a bush and I'm going to walk off. And we're told that the Lord hears the boy crying and the angel of the Lord cries out from heaven and she looks up at and sees a well. So she finds her salvation in a well. And the very next story, Abram's name has now been changed to Abraham, and God calls to him, and Abraham says, here I am. And God says, I need you to take your son, and I need you to sacrifice him to me on a mountain. And Abraham says, okay, which is a huge problem. I mean, I grew up in the church, and, and we covered this story a lot over the years, and we'd always say, and Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son because of his great faith. This is the whole, you know, credited to him as righteousness line of thinking, to which it's like, no, this is the kind of thing where if you don't grow up in the church and you're not used to hearing that a thousand times, like if you're visiting uh, with us today and somebody says that from up front, or if you're visiting another church and somebody says that kind of thing from up front, okay, cool, about Abraham, you look around the room and everybody else is like, uh-huh, yeah, that's right, amen, hallelujah. And you're like, what in the name of all that's holy is going on here? Yeah, you're right. No, this is not an amen moment. This is not good faith. What in the world is going on here? And so we have. To, there must be something else taking place. There must be more to this. It's worth taking the time here to know that this is not right. 
rather than you know another preacher just saying Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac because this is he had great faith and you know it's basically like pastoral malpractice. <laughs> To see, to see what's going on, we need to pull the history apart uh, a little bit. I want you to realize that Abram, Abraham lives in a world where every single God that he's ever met or heard about, every single one, without exception, whether it's the gods of Babylon or Chaldea, where he's from, whether it's the gods of Egypt, where he's kind of gone down and taken a vacation, whether it's the gods of Canaan, where he now lives, all of the gods that Abraham has ever encountered at some level and at some point, if you look at the history, they demand child sacrifice, usually of your firstborn son. So this God comes to Abraham and says, I need your firstborn son. And Abraham's response is, oh, of course, of course you do, because that's what every God does. I've seen it over and over again. I knew there had to be a catch. And I have to wonder if God is setting Abraham up for a lesson about who he is. Who is this Yahweh? He made me these promises, and he said he'd take the heat even if I don't hold up my end of the bargain. What the heck? Now he wants to now he wants to murder my son, the backstabbing. I mean, because here's the deal: Abraham doesn't have a book like you do at your table, or you know, for the story. He doesn't have the Bible in front of him. He doesn't have a storybook to look up. He doesn't have the internet to look at the scriptures. He doesn't have any of this stuff. He doesn't even have a scroll. He has nothing. This is before all that stuff is written down. So reluctantly, the next morning, Abraham packs up and they head out to the mountain. He takes the supplies, he puts it on Isaac's shoulders, they hike up the mountain, they get to the top, and Abraham has this knife in his hand and he's about to kill his son. And the angel of the Lord cries out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham replies, here I am. And he lifts up his eyes and he looks and he sees a ram in the thicket. So he looks up and he finds his salvation in a ram salvation from the situation. I think Abraham, I think he gets the lesson because I wonder if God wasn't getting Abraham in this place, this moment, he's kind of getting him into this spot that, where he would never, ever forget what kind of God, God is. It's this experiential moment and God says, stop. I don't want you to ever forget. I am not like any other God that you know. I am not like them. He says, I'll always provide for you. I will always provide the sacrifice that's what I do. And Abram stands up and names the mountain, the Lord who sees. He doesn't name it the Lord who provides, as some of your uh, translations might have. But I think, I think Abram sits on the top of this mountain and goes, God sees me. He didn't forget about me. He didn't forsake me. He was with me up on that mountain the whole time. He saw me. He sees me. And he provides for me. And we've talked about this before, about these, these two stories, the Hagar and Ishmael story and this Abraham and Isaac story. They don't seem to fit together very well, chronologically, actually. We're told that Ishmael was born back in Genesis 16. And five chapters later, we're told about Hagar and Ishmael being kicked out. Most people who read this talk to me about it. They picture a little baby or a little boy being placed under a bush, like a toddler or younger. And in Genesis 21, we're told that Isaac is being weaned. And in the very next story, we're told that he's carrying firewood. Like all of a sudden, it's boom, he's older. The timing is way off here. What it seems like is that these stories have been positioned here next to one another for a purpose. It's as if the author is saying, hey, I want you to see this right here. I want you to take notice of this. And so if you look at these stories, you see a lot of parallels between them. And here are a few. Story A is early in the morning, Abram rose. Story B, early the next morning, Abram rose. Uh, story A, Abram sets the supplies on Hagar's shoulders. Story B, 
Abram sets the supplies on Isaac's shoulders. Story A, Hagar puts the boy under the brush. Story B, Abraham puts the boy over the brush. Story A, the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven, and Hagar looks up to see her salvation in a well. Story B, the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven, and Abraham looks up to see his salvation in a ram. Story A, story A ends with a covenant. Story B ends with a covenant. So if you are an ancient Jewish reader, all of the lights on your dashboard should be blinking going off right now. And I want to ask you a question for all you moms out there. If you're reading this Hagar story, what is it that bothers you? And I'm asking the mothers out there because moms always say the same answer to this question. If you're reading this Hagar story, you're hearing it right now. What is it that bothers you? It's, it's that she abandoned her child. No mom that I've ever talked with is okay with that part of the story. No dad for that matter either. So the author wants to tell me something here about who this Hagar is and what she's like. And so I start looking at the second story for a comparison. If I'm an ancient Jewish reader of this or hearer of this story, I'm like, ooh, this is weird. I wanna let's examine these together. Remember all the parallels we just said. So I'm looking for I'm looking for some treasure in this story, something special the author wants me to pick up. And ancient Eastern authors use different methods to bury treasure in a story. We've talked about this kind of method before, uh, way back in our Covenant Kingdom uh, series again as well. Uh, it's called a chiasm, and it has this structure. A chiasm is a story that just kind of mirrors itself. Side A, side B, if you could fold these up onto themselves, they would match each other. And the treasure is buried right, right there in the middle. Well, the second story, the Abraham and, and Isaac story, is a chiasm. Here it is. I want to show it to you. It says, at the beginning of the story, Abraham replies, here I am. At the end of the story, he says the same thing. So those are kind of like the bookends. Here I am and here I am. Later in the story, Abraham places the wood on his son Isaac. And as things progress later on, Abraham places his son Isaac on the wood. So it's a big reversal there in that parallel. And then Right after that first statement with the wood, it says that the two of them went on together. And it says that again, right before the second statement about the wood, that they went on together. So I want you to see how that works in this chiastic structure. It's ABC, CBA, and they meet in the middle. And these funnel down to the center. It's like a big arrow flashing at the center of this story. And as we get there to the center, let's ask the dads a question. Dads, God has told you that you're supposed to go kill your son Isaac and you're at the bottom of the mountain on your way up to go do what God has told you to do. And what do you look like as you're going up? What's your demeanor? What's your demeanor like? Everybody wants to say sad or crying, but there's a problem with that, dads, because if you're crying at the bottom of the mountain before you get to the top, what's your son going to do? He's going to ask you, dad, why are you crying? And you want to, like, at the bottom of the mountain, you want to have that conversation? No. So you're talking about anything else. Look at that bush. Look at that tree. Look at that cricket. This is, this is likely what Abraham is doing here. And what, what happens in Genesis 22 verse 7 is it says Isaac spoke up. And the Hebrew word here is he interrupted. It's like he's trying to avoid. It's like Abraham's trying to avoid talking about the one thing he doesn't want to talk about, which is this, his identity as a dad because his first and primary role as a father is what? Dads, it's to protect your kids, to protect your family. And Isaac speaks up and says, Daddy, by the way, what bothered us about the Hagar story? It's that she abandoned her child. 
And in this moment where Abraham is going to make a decision about what he's going to do, he's like, am I going to run away? Am I going to fight through this or am I going to, or am I going to have flight? Am I going to stick around? Remember, just like with the first story about Hagar, the author wants to tell me something about who this Abraham is and what he's like. What is he really like? In his son's moment of great need, Daddy, Abraham says, yes, my son. But actually in Hebrew, if your Bible says, yes, my son, in Hebrew, that's not what it says. The Hebrew phrase there is the same phrase we've seen over and over and over again coming out of the lips of Abraham. He says, Hinene, here I am. Isaac, in your moment of greatest need, when I want to run away, here I am, because that's the kind of person I am. But the deepest truth here is this. That's the kind of being God he is. Remember, Abraham has already figured out he's the God that sees me. Later on in the story of the Exodus, Moses is going to come across God in a burning bush. And God is going to say to Moses, I need you to get my people out of Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. Go tell them. And Moses is like, you got to be kidding me, right? You've been on for like 430 years. And when I tell them, what am I going to say to them when they ask me, what's the name of our God? What in the world should I tell them? And you know what God tells him? He says, go tell them, go tell them this, Moses. Hinene. Here I am. I am. I always was. I always am. I always will be right by your side in every one of the moments of your greatest need. Moses, go tell them about the Abraham story. That's their story. Here I am. If you fast forward to Jesus, he's in a garden on the night he's betrayed, just like Isaac on the mountain with his dad, Abraham. And when Jesus is in the garden, right before he's arrested, without a doubt, this is the moment of humanity's greatest need. I am sure Jesus wanted to run off of that Mount of Olives, just like Abraham wanted to. And in John's account of this story, the guards come up and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you're uh, looking in your Bible, this is in John 18, and the text says he replies to them, I am he. That's not what it really says. In Hebrew, he says, you guessed it, he says, Hineni, here I am. And to be honest with you, I always forget this part. John's account, John's account tells us that when he says this, what happens uh, after that, the soldiers literally fall over. Because in our greatest moment of need, Jesus says, here I am, and I'm not going anywhere. That's who our God is. And people that trust the story know how to put that same fierce and loyal love on display. And that's why God partnered with Abraham. He faces his fear head on and he says, here I am to Isaac. And in return, God says, here I am. I want you to listen to me. Father, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. And God offers the same invitation to us that he offered to Abraham and that Jesus put on display for us. He says, I'm looking for partners to save the world. We put God on display to a broken world. In the struggle of your life, because you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, every life is messy. In that struggle, are you the kind of person who's willing to lean into the story that God's trying to tell the world? Are you the kind of person who's able to go up to people without flinching and say, I see you, I see you, and, I, and here I am. In all of your mess, I see you. 
I won't leave you. Here I am. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.